Come today. There's no reason to wait. We're going to be talking about discipleship. And last week, Jesus was calling his disciples to forsake all and follow. That word follow has a beginning and a continuing. A beginning, follow me, begin. Come to know him. Salvation is a free offer. It's paid for. But continuing to follow Christ is discipleship long-term, and that has a little bit of a cost to it. And we're going to see that a little bit today, but I want to encourage you, if you're here today listening to this discourse on discipleship, I'm inviting you to come into a relationship with Christ, begin the following of Christ. And if you already are there, I, I want to encourage you to continue on, continue to follow him. Luke 6, verses, we're actually going to be starting in verse 12, Luke 6, 12 to 38. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the story of the book of Luke. So how does Jesus come to do that? That's really the question as we go through this great book together. So let's start in verse 12 to 16, just kind of as an intro to get us started this morning. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. How's that for a list of disciples, right? Look at verse 12. Don't miss this. And this is, we'll see this all the way through the book of Luke. We've already seen it, but prayer. Before he made this very obviously important decision to call his disciples and apostles, he prayed all night to his father. What Jesus wants us to know is that everything we do in this life in following him needs to be just coded in prayer. We need to spend time with him before we make these decisions. And that's just simply modeled here by Jesus. And then it mentions in verses 13 to 16 the names of the 12 men that he calls to be his disciples. We've met four of them last week, chapter 5. They're listed first. Peter... His brother Andrew, James, and John, the four fishermen, how Jesus called out of the boat, and he performed that miracle, and there was that worship and that call on their lives to put down the nets and follow him. There's something more here that I want you to do. And then later in that chapter, we meet a sinner, someone who wasn't really looked up to in society. In fact, the opposite would be true. He was a tax collector. His name is Matthew. He's in the list there. Wow. Really, Jesus, are, you know, you're choosing Matthew to be a part of your group. Wow, that, that's saying something, isn't it? I want you to see also on the list, there's a gentleman that we don't really know a lot about. His name is Simon, but it says he was also called the Zealot. How's that for a nickname? What does that mean? Well, there was a group of people in first century Judaism that said, look, These Romans need to be dealt with, and so we're going to deal with them militarily. We're going to take up the sword, and we're going to wipe them all out. They were called zealots. So you have in your party of 12 here, you have Matthew who says, I'm going to work for the Romans. I'm a traitor. I'm going to earn money for them. In fact, I'm going to skim a little off the top for myself. So I'm all for the Romans. They're They're the ones that hired me. Then you've got over here a zealot who says, not only are the Romans our enemy, but let's take them out. Imagine walking alongside the disciples of Jesus with that group. And we don't know a lot about the rest of them. We really don't. Some of them we do, some of them we don't. But already you have in that group conflict already there. Then, lastly, Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, what a group, huh? Disciples whom he called apostles. Apostles means ones who are sent out. And apostles here have the capital A. They are the ones upon whom 
Jesus is going to build his church. They are going to be the ones who give us Scripture, these apostles. This is the New Testament writers. These are the ones that are going to go out and form churches and are going to be the ones to spread the gospel. They're important. In fact, in Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14, we see just how important these 12 apostles are. It's speaking of the New Jerusalem, a description here in Revelation 21. It says it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the Old Testament, isn't it? The chosen people of God, Old Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel, their names are going to be there. They're a part of the story. But it goes on. There were 12 gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Here they are, these 12, minus Judas Iscariot. So these are important men that Jesus was calling. Verse 17, he was up on this mountainside, and he says he went down with them and stood on a level place. This idea that coming down with them, I think there's really a couple of things happening with this as he went down. There's really two objectives to going down with the 12. Number one, from this point forward, Jesus is saying, these 12 are going to be associated with me. Wherever I go, they're going to go. That was the first purpose, I think, in coming down from up above to a level place. But I think a second one was to give them, the disciples, a little different perspective and say to them, look, from this point forward, you're not going to be out there in the audience listening to me speak. You're going to be up here on the stage with me as I speak. So there's a whole new shift that's going on here and symbolized by him coming down the mountain with his 12 apostles. It's called the Sermon on, we know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, right? This one's actually called, and you can go to, call, maybe in your Bible there's a note there, but this one's called the Sermon on the Level. How's that? And some of the commentators like to have fun with that, and they say, well, here Jesus is leveling with his disciples. How's that? Get the word play? Okay. Never mind. Um, is, it, is it a different sermon? Is it the same sermon? My, what I see is it's the same sermon but Luke's going to give it his emphasis. It's going to look a little different from Matthew. And it focuses, it, he's on a level place, but he's still up there on the mountain. He's coming down from the mountain to a place that was level where he could stand. So I think it's the same sermon, but there's some differences, and I want to highlight those real briefly. Number one, if you go to Matthew and read the Sermon on the Mount, it's three chapters long, really long, and it's pretty detailed. Here in Luke, it's, he gives most of one chapter to it. So it's much shorter. Luke leaves out all of the legal elements. Matthew speaks of the law. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he speaks about, you've heard that it was said, and he, he refers back into the Old Testament law. You've heard that it was said, do not kill, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother he introduces a different element in Matthew. In Luke, that's left out. And I think the reason is because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience rather than a Jewish audience, which we have in Matthew. To them, they're not so concerned with what's going on in the Old Testament law. They're more concerned about what's going on now in the life of Jesus. So it looks a little bit different. Luke has four Beatitudes. We're going to see those coming up here starting in verse 20. Matthew has eight. Blessed are the fill in the blank. Matthew has eight of those. Luke has half that many, four. Some are the same, but Matthew gives us more detail there. And what we're going to see today, Luke includes four curses or woes along with the Beatitudes. So he's going to say, blessed are you who do this, but on the flip side, woe to you who do this. Give us the opposite, kind of turning over the coin. And we'll see that here in verses 24 and 25. So it's just a little bit different. Verse 17 and 18 and 19 describe kind of the scene as Jesus gives this discourse. 
He says, he went down, he stood on a level place. It says a large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and he was healing them all. You get this scene, there's the 12 who are with Jesus. There's three groups, really. They're his apostles. Then there's a group, smaller, a larger group of disciples, those that were following him at some level. And then there's just this mass of humanity that had come there from as far away as the coast, from Tyre and Sidon. So you have kind of three different groups in this audience as Jesus is giving this discourse. They were there to hear him. They wanted to hear his teaching because he taught as one with authority. We've already seen that. But they also wanted more than that, didn't they? They wanted to be healed. They came to him with all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And there were those who had demons in them. So we have Jesus casting out demons. He's healing people. He's speaking God's word to people. And people just wanted to touch him. So you get this chaotic scene of them just wanting to reach out because the power of Jesus was just literally oozing from him and they could it was just this incredible scene and Jesus kind of steps out of that for a second and says I need to teach you some things and so he gives this discourse starting in verse 20 this is called the four blessings and the four woes or the four curses so verses 20 through 26 looking at his disciples he said and by disciples I think he's referring to not the 12 there but the group of people who were following him out in front in the audience. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets but woe to you and now here's the flip side he spoke of the poor woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort he spoke of those who are hungry verse 25 woe to you who are well fed now for you're going to go hungry he spoke of those who were weeping he says woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. He said, blessed are you when men revile you and hate you and insult you and exclude you and all these things. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Isn't that interesting? Flip side of the coin. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Interesting. Four blessings and four cursings. The word blessed there literally is kind of this idea, it's, it's a happiness, happy, but it's beyond happy. It's transcendent happy. By that I mean it doesn't depend on what's going on, the earth, your earthly fortunes, what's going on currently in your life. It's not based on that, and it doesn't disappear in difficult times. That's the kind of blessed and the kind of blessing that Jesus is talking about here in this context. And he's going to use four very or more difficult words. So it's a pep talk, but it kind of comes as like, hmm? This is a weird way to give a pep talk. It says, blessed are you when you're poor, when you're hungry, when you weep, and when people just hate you and insult you. How's that? I think what we're seeing here and what things we need to understand is there's a cost. I mentioned this last week. Salvation is free. It's been paid for. The invitation to come follow Jesus, it's there. Anytime, please take it up. But to be a continual disciple, follower of Jesus Christ, weigh the cost. There's something there. Jesus speaks to his disciples about that. There's some cost to it. There's some cost in being a long-time, long-term follower of Jesus Christ. But there's blessing in it. There's this weird paradox that we're going to see. Difficulty, but there's blessing. That's the Christian life. It's a divine paradox. Also, we're going to see that in these difficult times, they're good because they teach us dependence. 
A true disciple of Jesus Christ learns to be more dependent upon a Savior, not less dependent. And then we're also going to see that the kingdom of God is now, right here. It's at hand, but it's not yet. There's things that are true about everything we are in Christ. Yes, now, but wait. It's not yet. And that's the story of the gospel. That's the story of God's kingdom in our life. He's going to give us the woes on the flip side. Woe to you who are. The word woe there is a a mournful moan uttered in response to personal anguish. That sounds like a pleasant word, doesn't it? What he's saying, he's speaking to people who aren't following him here. Saying, if you aren't following me, guess what? Even though things are, look good, and the you know, rich, well-fed, laughing, everybody's speaking well of you, everything looks good here and now, guess what? It's not. It's not good at all. In fact, there's a woe here upon you. So what are these blessings? Here we go. The first one is in verse 20, the blessing of poverty. How's that? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. There's the economically poor, and I think Jesus is speaking to that a little bit. In Luke 4, he says he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. He's quoting Isaiah there. He says, part of what I want to do is I want to proclaim good news to those who are poor economically. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? He's speaking of those who are spiritually poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He starts his beatitudes that way. I think the idea here is that I bring nothing. I'm poor. In relationship to God, I bring nothing to the relationship. And it starts with a realization and understanding of that. I need to depend upon God for my needs. I need to depend upon him to meet my needs. That's what it's saying. This is the starting point of blessing in our life is understanding who we are before God. In fact, in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, one of the criticisms of that church is, John says, you say you are rich, but indeed you are poor. You think you have it all together. In relationship to God, you don't. You're coming to God with pride rather than humility and poor in spirit attitude. The blessing is yours is the kingdom of God. Wow, okay. You're poor now, but guess what? There's a kingdom there that you're a part of, that you will enjoy the benefits of. That is an amazing. Woe to the rich. Look at verse 24. On the flip side of this, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I wanted to point out that word comfort there. The Greek word is actually paraklesis. If that sounds familiar, it's the same word, Holy Spirit, parakletos, one who comes alongside. So what he's saying, he's kind of a, it's a little play on words. You already have your comfort, your one who comes alongside now. So the question is, what he's asking is, so which comforter do you want? You can have money and all the things this world gives as your comforter, or you can have God and the presence of God in your life, the Holy Spirit. It's your choice. That's what he's really saying. So there's a blessing of poverty, then there's a blessing of hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now. I love it now. You're hungry now, but guess what? It's not always going to be that way. There's this little hint of promise there. There's this idea of delayed gratification, learning to wait on God to fill our needs that we have in our lives. Maybe things aren't going right now. Maybe you're, you're hungry physically. Maybe you're hungry spiritually right now. But I'm going to rely on God because he's going to meet my needs down the road. I'm going to wait on him. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 gives us this idea of looking beyond just the here and now. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Oh, that we could just learn how... So the idea here is uh, 
may we never become so well-fed that we never hunger for things above. That's really what Jesus is saying. And then the promise, the blessing is you will be satisfied. God will satisfy you. There's a divine passive there. By that, it simply means God is assumed. He's not stated. You won't be satisfied by yourself. The world's not going to satisfy you, but God will. So you can insert the divine into that. In the Jewish way of thinking, if you go into the Old Testament, feasts and banquets were a big part of their culture and their life. And this idea of not being well-fed was significant to them. It was the idea that you are not celebrating, that you are not part of the celebration. And God wants to point out to them, you will celebrate. There will be a time of feasting and celebrating. Now, but not yet. Wait. Then there's a blessing of sorrow in verse 21 there. Blessed are you who weep now. This is also the idea of delayed gratification, weeping now. Romans 8, 22 and 23, it says, We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we're groaning. There's some struggle here in the fall. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption to sonship, the redemption of of our bodies, there's something in the fall that we experience in our lives, that groaning that's there, but we know it's not forever, is it? We know that we're going to be comforted. You know, I've come to the realization in my own life that I'm not good at grief. I'm not good at sorrow. I don't do that well. I do happiness and laughter well. If I were to choose a movie, I would much rather go to a comedy than one that has a lot of tears in it. That's just me. And I think in my life, I've learned of myself, I need to learn how to grieve and how to mourn and how to weep because there's a blessing in that because God is there in those times. And just this last week, it's been a week of grief and some tears have been shed, but I stand up here today and say, it's okay, it's good. Because God is good. He's going to comfort us, even in moments when it seems like all we do is cry. God's there, and he's teaching me some depth here. He's teaching me it's okay. It's okay to cry. You don't have to laugh all the time, for goodness sakes. Although I still am more comfortable there. Here's the blessing. For you will laugh. Again, it's a divine passive. God will cause you to laugh. He's going to bring joy and laughing into your life. And there's a beautiful pair of verses back in Psalms 126. And I saw this referred to in one of the commentaries. And I think this is beautiful. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. There's going to be this incredible blessing, abundance of joy but there's also gonna be some tears in the middle of that. The blessing of sorrow. Then the hardest one maybe to hear, there's this blessing of rejection. Wow, four words there. Blessed are you when you're hated, when you're excluded, when you're insulted, and when you're rejected. How's that for a foursome? Okay, Lord. Um, And the thing that's a little different There's no blessing given here. It's just, blessed are you when, blah, 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 period. Trust me. Trust me in this one. We're not given a blessing there in the immediate context. And it says, blessed are you in these things because, and this is an important clause, because of the Son of Man. You know, it's one thing to be hated, rejected, despised, insulted because of me, because of what I do, and then I reap all that on me. That's one thing. But Jesus is saying, not, I'm not talking about when you cause your own grief in your life. I've done plenty of that. I'm talking about when you're following me and being obedient to what I ask, and you receive all of that. In one of the commentaries, there was a great little reminder of this. Kent Hughes is the gentleman's name. He has a really great commentary. He said, Christians are often persecuted, not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it. 
Sometimes they simply have unpleasing personalities. They're rude, they're insensitive, they're thoughtless, they're piously obnoxious. Does that, I hope that doesn't sound like us. I hope not. Some are rejected because they're discerned as proud and judgmental. Ooh, ouch. Others are disliked because they're lazy and irresponsible. Wow, he's really pulling it out here, isn't he? Either arrogance or incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. Look, there are times where I, I earned that, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about being a follower of Jesus. It's not talking about being rude and judgmental to people. We need to stop doing that, by the way. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But for following Jesus, then we receive these things, these four words that are just painful to even list them out. Jewish Christians at the time of Luke's writing were already being tossed out of the synagogue. They were already experiencing exactly what he's writing here because they were Christians, because they were claiming the name of Jesus Christ. So they were being excluded already. Verse 23 says, rejoice and leap for joy. When all this is going on, get excited about it and jump around in joy. Really? That's difficult. It's upside down, isn't it, a little bit? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know his story. He was in Germany during the time of Nazism, and he stood up for Christ, and he reaped the consequences, and he has a lot to say about suffering. And so here's a PowerPoint. Thank you. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. We wear it. The disciple is not above his master. Jesus says, you're not above me, so guess what? I suffered, you're going to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. It is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, and here's the part that I liked, it is a joy and a token of his grace in our lives. Suffering, it's a joy. Embrace it. Leap for joy, even though that's going to go against every grain of natural feeling and tendency that you're going to have in your life. Embrace it because here's why. You're following Jesus, and there's a mark. It's a badge of, of, of following him. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Follow Jesus Christ, persecution is going to it's going to follow. So just know that to be true and don't be surprised when it happens. In fact, here in this passage, when we endure rejection for Christ, we're in good company. As Jesus says here, they did the same thing back in the Old Testament to the prophets. They did this. You're in good company here. Don't feel like it's a bad thing. They did the same thing. But look at verse 26. It's the woe side. It's the other side of that coin. He says, woe when everybody speaks well of you. <laughs> I like that. I don't know about you. I like it when people speak well of me. I like to hear people say kind words. I don't like it when people speak ill of me. I don't know about you, but that's just the way I am. But look what it says here. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. They spoke, oh yeah, oh, they False prophets told them what they wanted to hear. So, of course, they're going to speak well of them. You're telling people what they don't want to hear, the gospel. So, guess what? There's persecution there. So, we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate. You exclude you, insult you, and leave you out of things because you're following me as a disciple. But then he goes into love, love of the disciple, verses 27 through 36. Love is the theme. Love is the heart of our calling as the disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says, Woe, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. You know, we're told to love God. We're told to love our neighbor as ourselves, the greatest commandment. But Jesus says, there's more I ask of you as a follower of me, and that is, I want you to love those that are, have everything, they're trying to get you, your enemy. That's a calling. 
That is a calling. And what he's referring to in the word is, is love. It's an agape. It's an unconditional. It's a God love because a human love isn't going to go there. I'm not going to love on my own. I'm not going to love people that are out to get me. I'm going to either run away or I'm going to go right back at them. Jesus says there's a different kind of love that I'm calling you into here, and it's God's love. It's unconditional love based upon his character and not yours. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, thought this was really good. I wanted to read this. It says, agape, it's a word rarely found outside Jewish and Christian writings. The Greek culture celebrated eros, which, although used in various contexts, often connoted intoxicating, impulsive, romantic love between a man and a woman. They also honored philia, the warm, noble, brotherly type of deep friendship love, and that's great. But for the most part, agape remained an undeveloped term in Greek literature. Okay, again, Luke is writing to Greeks here. The human authors of the New Testament needed a Greek word to express God's love, especially the kind of love modeled by Christ and commanded by him in the upper room. But the most common Greek terms wouldn't suffice. There wasn't a good word out there except for this one. So here's what they did. Fortunately, agape, relatively unknown, largely undefined, so it perfectly suited their purposes. Like an empty wineskin, it waited to be filled with distinctly Christian meaning. Isn't that beautiful? Here's this beautiful wineskin, agape. It's waiting to be filled with this beautiful meaning that Christ is teaching his disciples. What is agape? It means I'm going to love you regardless because that's what God is all about. It's based on his character and not on my feelings. It's an action word. It's not an emotion. And it's just this wineskin which is waiting to be filled with this beautiful word. That is the basis love. That agape love is the basis upon which my actions go out. And so the verses following here, we're going to see how do we love our enemy in verses 28 to 35, he's going to tell us, and here's, here's how we love. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Heard that one before, right? The golden rule. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. That's just human. There's nothing, no big deal about that. But... Here's love agape. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So He's going to give us five actions based upon agape love here that we are to live out in response to not just our neighbor, but actually to our enemy. So here they are. The first one is bless those who curse you, verse 28. The word bless there is to speak well of. That's what that word literally means. Avoiding the temptation to talk down another's reputation or to gossip or to speak evil of them, but speak well of your enemy. Wow. In the, con- in the New Testament, this word also had the connotation of speaking well of this person to God. So I'm speaking well of that person to people, but I'm also speaking well as I talk to God of that person. That's raising it to a whole different level, isn't it? And look what it says. Bless those who curse you. So they're calling down curses from the gods, small g, on you. Meanwhile, you're praying to God, the Father, and speaking well of them. You you see the picture here? They want to curse you, but you're blessing them. Wow. That's agape, isn't it? That's love. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's a follow-up there. 
continuing on, you're speaking well in prayer to God for the person that is out to get you. You know, Jesus not only expected disciples to leave vengeance in the hands of him, but bring these people to me in prayer. You know, it's hard to wish ill things of people when you're praying for them. Have you found that to be true? It's easy to wish ill of people when you're not praying for them, but when you're bringing them to God and praying for them, it changes everything. It changes the direction of your heart and your focus, doesn't it? That's why we're, we're told to pray for those who persecute us. We're told to pray for our government. No matter what side of the aisle you find yourself on in the political landscape, guess what? There's one common command that we're all given, that is to pray, because it draws our hearts back to God and helps us to refocus on what's really important, not what is temporal and what is going on here, but it, we're, we're told to do it in Scripture based on love. Pray for those who mistreat you. Respond gently to insults, verse 29. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. Slapping you on the cheek is referring there to an insulting slap or maybe a slap of rejection, not a, some kind of frontal assault where somebody's coming in to take your life. Jesus isn't saying someone's coming in to take you out physically, just turn the other cheek. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if someone slaps you on the cheek insulting you, don't go right back at them, turn the other cheek. Take the insult. Take the slap to your ego in love. That's what he's referring to. He's not saying be a doormat and just let somebody take your life, but he's saying step back, respond gracefully to them rather than harshly, which is the natural way. Respond gently to the insults. Be generous to those who are selfish. Look at 29, the second part in verse 30. Someone comes in and nabs your coat and you give them your shirt. And they keep going for more. How do you respond to that person? Generously, that's how Jesus would say. It's this idea of keeping a loose grip on our possessions. I own this, you took it away. You know what, this is God's anyway. You took it, so here's more. <laughs> here's my shirt. I'll go get another one. It's okay, God's gonna take care of my needs. I don't have to worry about it. I can respond generously to those who are selfish. In the kingdom of God, things can be replaced. You know, people can't. Things can. Generous spirit. Treat others as you would like to be treated. That is the golden rule there in verse 31. That's Jesus' words. But this idea was around in the time. And I have a PowerPoint. I want to show some sayings by famous people prior to the time of Christ that were there, people were aware of in their culture. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Sound familiar? That was Confucius, 500 BC. Then we, we should behave to our friends as we wish our friends to behave to us. Aristotle, a little bit later in time, 300 BC, a little bit closer to Christ's time, but still before. Plato, may I behave to others as they should do to me. Sound familiar? It's the golden rule, isn't it? Then the Tobit 415. Tobit is a Jewish writing in the intertestament period that wasn't received into the Old Testament or later on the Bible as a whole, but it was around in, in Jesus' time and people would have been aware of it. It was a Jewish writing. What you hate, do not do to anyone. Now the one difference maybe between these is this. Jesus kind of focuses more on the positive. He takes, these are more kind of, on, you know, what you don't want done to you, don't do to others. Jesus kind of turns it more on the pause, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's more of a positive change. He's saying, you know, he's, he's focusing more on reaching out in love and treating others kindly, not on the basis of how they're treating you. So it's, it's a little bit different, but... Again, there's just this basic human standard that Jesus is referring to, but he calls his disciple to, disciples to a deeper level. Look at verses 32 to 34. He asks them some questions. He says, okay, let's start with this, the golden rule, and it's a good rule, but let's go deeper in this. And he says here in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Okay, again, it's not treating others, you know, do unto others as, as, same, but it's they're treating you poorly, treat them well. Go above and beyond that. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. That's just a human thing. Pagans can do that. People that don't know me can do that. Do more. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, but they expect to be repaid in full. They'll lend, but don't think it's just a give, right? What he's talking about is grace. Give to them in grace. It's undeserved. It's not going to be repaid back. We respond in grace to people. That's different than just the golden rule, which is a good rule, but it's just a starting point, and it's a human standard. But I'm calling you to a much deeper, godly standard of living. Loving people without the expectation of return. Boy, that's a deep calling, isn't it? If I love you without the expectation of return, that changes everything, doesn't it? But often, we don't do that. I love you expecting and almost demanding return, right? That's not the calling of his disciples. And then look at verse 35 and 36. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High. Wow. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That's God. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You're supposed to love other people because it's an agape love that you're to love with. But I want the character in your life, I'm going to call you to a higher character, and it's going to be based upon your father, like father, like child. You're part of his family. He is merciful. He loves people. He reaches out, and that's the basis for your character, for who you are and who you are to be. So be merciful, verse 36. We've received, received that mercy we give mercy. Mercy is withholding something that is deserved, meaning you deserve to be punished or you deserve retaliation, but I'm going to withhold that. That's mercy. That's what God does for us who are in Christ. His mercy has been taken care of. He reaches out because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross, but there's also grace, giving something undeserved, the flip side of it, something given that that person did not deserve. Reach out in mercy to people. That's our, what our character is to be based upon. Mercy has empathy in it. It's a deep empathy for what's going on in people's lives. Sympathy, I feel sorry for you. Empathy goes a step further and says, I'm gonna understand where you're coming from. I'm gonna walk in your shoes a little bit. Not just feel sorry for you and go, oh man, I'm actually going to maybe engage in relationship talk to you, reach out to you, seek to understand more about your story, why you are where you're at. That's empathy. That goes deeper, and that's a beautiful thing. And that's the heart of mercy. So he's going to give us some instructions here, our character. What's our character to be like? Because it's based upon God's mercy. Verse 37, look what he says. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Wow, there's some things here, he says, that are, need to be a part of your character. First of all, don't judge. Now let me clarify this, because this one is probably least understood, most abused sayings of Jesus out there, Okay. What does it mean, don't judge? First of all, it doesn't mean, and this, it's often used, I've said this before, when people, when you step into people's lives and you say, look, this isn't right, people will pull the don't judge card out of their wallet like they carry it around to deflect you. Don't judge. They'll put it back into their wallet for another time and they'll move on, meaning, look, Shut up. 
<laughs> be quiet, I don't want to hear it, whatever. It's kind of used to deflect often. Don't judge, period. Or it can be used to take away any kind of objective right and wrong. Don't judge. Because what they're really saying is there's no real right and there's no real wrong out there. It's all kind of relative and whatever you want to do is fine and whatever I want to do, but don't this judge thing because there's no, they, what they're saying is there's no objective truth when there is. There is objective truth. And we're called to call sin a sin. We are. We're told to do it gracefully, but there is right and wrong. And we are in a community, there is community accountability in the body of Christ with a fellow believer. If they are not following the Lord and there's gross sin in their life, I don't just say, well, I'm not supposed to judge you and move on. That's not what it's talking about. So what does it mean? What does Jesus mean, don't judge? I think that's an important question. Well, one thing, it means don't act, don't pretend, don't take the place of God basically in their life. It's okay to point out the sin, but leave it up to God to deal with that person and their heart, okay? So don't act as judge, sitting in judgment over people or attempt to make myself look better by criticizing other. Oh, look at, look at that person over there and judging that way. I would say also this. I think the command literally means be slow to judge. Don't let it be your default. The automatic response you always have every time is judge. That's what it's saying. Be slow to judge. Having a judgmental attitude. Saying, in a sense, that person is that way. They've always been that way. They will always be that way, and nothing will ever change. What we're doing there is we're acting as God, and we're not allowing God's grace to even be a part of the picture. There's a great quote. It says, love for one's enemy does not fix a view of him in stone. It allows God's grace to work on the person's life. It might not always be that way. I don't have a right to bang down the gavel on that person. And that flows right into do not condemn. It's the same idea. If you're not judging, I, I can't condemn that person. Romans 8.1 is my, maybe my favorite verse in the Bible. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I need to be reminded of that, but it's because I'm in Christ Jesus, okay? John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. But then verse 18, those that do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are condemned already, okay? You don't have to condemn them. If they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are condemned, they stand condemned before God already. So guess what, let's step into their life and talk about the gospel. Let's bring that into their life. Guess what, God's the one who condemns, not me. I'm gonna let him do it. Then forgive, verse 37, that simply means release. I release that person from taking vengeance upon them, I'm gonna let God do that, and I'm gonna release from holding that over your head forever. You did this, I'm not gonna forgive you and I'm gonna hold it over your head and never let it go and I'm gonna make your life misery. There's something that we love about that, I don't know, it's, it's twisted and weird and it's wrong because it's not forgiving, right? But we're to forgive. And then verse 38, I love this verse. Give in good measure. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over. The picture here in this verse is of a person receiving grain in the marketplace. And as you go to the marketplace, normally you'd bring a container with you. But the picture here seems to be that the person does not have a container, something to put the grain in. So what they would do commonly in that period of time, in their tunic, they would raise the tuning up and kind of form a little, little area where they could put the grain in and hold it. And that's when it says lap, into your lap. That is what it's referring to. There's almost this idea of surprise. The person came, wasn't expecting to receive anything, but there it is, it's offered. And it's not just offered, but it's generously offered. It's pressed down, it's good measure, it's pressed down, it's shaken together, it's running over. This person wants to give you as much as they possibly can give you. They're not gonna cheat you on this, they're gonna give generously. That's God, isn't it? 
Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. That's 1 John 3, 1. That word lavish is it's full and it's running over. That's our God. He gives to us, not just, okay, enough is enough. Fair is fair, you, you know, you get what you deserve, that sort of thing. God's grace and God's mercy says, I'm gonna give you more than you can handle. That's the kind of character, that's the kind of heart that we're called as disciples of his. Jesus goes on the rest of the chapter to give some parables and say, you know, you need to follow the right kind of leader. He talks about the blind leader, and he's, in his culture, he's referring to the Pharisee, the blind leading the blind. You're gonna end up in a ditch, basically, is what he says. Don't follow those that are blind. Don't follow those that are hypocrites. Again, reference to the Pharisees. Beam in the eye, a little splinter. He talks about that, the difference. He says, they talk about your splinter, but they got this beam. They're hypocrites. And then he talks about the parable of the trees. The good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. From their lives is, comes their leadership style. From the leaders of the day, they were bad leaders. Don't follow them. Instead, the wise and the foolish builders parable, build your life and you're following on my words. Follow me, I'm the good leader. That's what he's saying. In conclusion, discipleship, it's costly. You're gonna be hungry. You're gonna be poor at times. You're gonna weep. You're gonna be rejected, ridiculed, insulted. But guess what? Blessed are you, blessed are you, because that's not forever. God is with you in that. We're called to agape love, no expectation of return, and no, not just people that love us, but our enemy. Everybody is in this. And one thing I want to leave you with, there are no graduates from Christ's discipleship program. It is a lifelong journey. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple, and I want to invite those of you that haven't entered into that, please, it's an invitation. I'm giving it to you, the Lord gives it to you. If you haven't started it, today's the day to jump into that relationship with Him, but it's a lifelong thing. We haven't arrived, and there's things that we all need to learn. That's why we do this. We come together, we read the Word, so God bless.